everyone and welcome back to the Secret Sunday session. Now this is the first one as we're returning in 2024 and I'm super excited to get back into it and today to kick off with our first guest we have Bonnie Hancock with us which is so exciting to have her on to share her story of what she's been doing and what she does with herself now and I think it's she has an amazing story sharing about adversity how she has overcome it but also a little bit how she has put herself in adverse situations and been able to find the resilient resilience to get herself out of it as well um so thank you so much Bonnie for joining us today I'm it's awesome to have you on board and a privilege. Um, for those the people that don't know who you are and what you do with yourself, who is Bonnie Hancock to the world and what does she do with herself? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with that. And say it's a pleasure to be here as well. And um, I love I love talking about that adversity and finding resilience, you know, in the even in the face of situations we never saw coming. And um, we'll, we'll get into my, my last couple of years and how I've had to um, certainly build a bit of resilience there. But yeah, my name's Bonnie. I grew up in Sawtell, the beautiful little coastal town in Coffs Harbour. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a professional ironwoman from the age of 12 when I watched Carla Gilbert, the top iron woman at the time, run around on television. And at the age of 17, I packed up my little car and moved to the Gold Coast and I joined Northcliffe Surf Club, which is one of the biggest clubs in Australia. Uh, the Gold Coast is sort of the hub of surf life saving. It's, um, you know, there's, there's been people who have probably made it from small towns to some degree in the sport, but it's really Gold Coast and Sydney and, and the Sunshine Coast that have these big powerhouse clubs uh, where basically you have the best coaches in the world and, you know, you, you've got a better chance at setting yourself up with sponsorships and different things like that. I was lucky enough to make the Professional Nutrient Iron Woman Series at the age of 17 and spent the better part of 10 years running around with Hancock on the back of my togs, which is all I ever wanted, uh, you know, in that professional series. I got to the age of, I think it was 25, and I realised I wanted to change. Um, I think I'd done everything I sort of wanted to do and had ever aimed for in the sport, and I took up specialist ski paddling. So in Surf Life Saving, your Iron Woman is an event which um, is board, swim, ski and run. That's about 15 minutes. I switched to specialist ski paddling, more of a three and a half minute sprint. Uh, similar to the kayak is, is what we paddle. They're a little bit heavier and built for the surf. So I switched to specialist ski paddling and never looked back and, and found like a strength I'd never had when I was younger in that, in my upper body. Had some um, results in that I was really happy with. And mid-COVID in 2020, I picked up a book. I picked up a book. It was a sort of a fateful day. The libraries had just opened and uh, I picked up three books that day and one of them was a book called Fearless and it was about Freya Hofmeister, the German woman who paddled around Australia in 2009 and she actually broke the world record the men had set prior in, in paddling around Australia and she did it in ten and a half months and I'll never forget the feeling of being about a chapter into that book and I was reading about crocodiles stalking her and sharks and <laughs> I still just had this feeling like almost like it felt like a bit of a calling, like it was something I not only wanted to do but sort of had to do. And in December 2021, I set out from the Gold Coast and I paddled my ski around Australia and, and managed to become the fastest ever to do so. So got a Guinness World Record um, while I was doing it. 
That is phenomenal. I mean, what an amazing accomplishment. And even to get into that mindset that, you know, once you were set and once you decided that that was what you were going to do, it was almost like there was nothing stopping you until you had reached that mark. And I think that resilience and that strength is phenomenal. So congratulations on that because a lot of people don't hold on to that. Thank you. And even, yeah, just getting to the start line, it was 12 months of researching the currents and the wind patterns. And I mean, the marine life, we've got the most dangerous sea creatures in the world. We've got, you know, great white sharks. I, I was paddling a ski, which was six metres. So I knew the sharks and crocodiles were were just as big or as big as my ski. And, um, you know, we'll dive into all of that. But it, it was 12 months of, um, you know, planning logistics and um, financially, my husband and I had to sell our cars and put our life savings into this. And it was just a drop in the ocean of what we needed to fund a catamaran to come with me for the journey. So I would have faced about 20 something rejections in terms of sponsorship before I got that yes. And and that was all I needed, just someone to take a chance on me. So it can be hard to keep the self-belief at times, but if you've got that support network around you, even if that's one person in your corner, um, that's all you need. Mm, that's phenomenal. And, I mean, as I said, we will talk about that and that journey of you getting there. I mean, but let's go back to those, you know, when you were a little girl, when you were 12 and you decided that you wanted to compete in one of the Ironmans. Why, what drove you to want to perform at such an elite level? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question and it's a question I'm often asked and I sort of think back and I think from a young age um, I was physically quite small when I was younger. I've got three sisters and I was always super competitive but I think I had to work so hard to have a win. So, you know, at school I, I was the smallest in my grade for so long and um, it took me until grade 12 to win best sportswoman of the year because I had to go against my sisters and the other amazing athletes and I think that work ethic was there from such a young age in that I was never a naturally gifted athlete Um you can probably see it in the Australian Open at the moment with the tennis players that you've got, you know, your Alex Diminal who has to sort of work hard for everything he gets and you've got your big, you know, six foot five sort of natural athletes and I was never one of them. So I think I was always prepared to do the work to get there and I think it was the competitiveness that drove me and almost a stubbornness as well. I think I would refuse to be outworked at training. I would always be the first in the water and the last to leave and that sort of has stayed with me my whole life. Um, I, I think almost that naivety and optimism got me to the start line of this paddle and the stubbornness. Um, to quit, you know, I re the refusal to quit is what got me to the finish line. I think there's a saying you need to be stupid enough to start and, and um, stubborn <laughs> enough to finish, and I feel that sums yeah. me up. Um, and sure enough, it sort of has served me well in a few different areas, just that that willingness to do whatever it takes to get it done. Mm. And, I mean, it would have been so much pressure not only on your body physically but mentally, how did you get through those moments when, you know, at such a young age, at such a young age as well, when you're developing, when you've got peer pressure going on, when your friends are probably going out doing different stuff and then, you know, come 17, 18, you start to then come to the drinking age. And being an athlete, that's not always something that you want to prioritise because you want to be fit for competition. 
how did you get rid of all the noise and know to really focus on yourself and your goals and your purpose? That's right. And that there was, you're absolutely right. You start getting to the age of even, you know, 15, 16, and you really have to start making those choices. Um, I was really fortunate to be surrounded by a group of amazing friends who always supported me in what I did. And they were never judgmental. I think, um, you know, when I moved into high school, I, I probably was in a, in a peer group that wasn't as supportive of my sport. And I think naturally I sort of, um, you know, tended to take a bit of a different path when it came to friends. And, and it's really important as well, kind of, I guess, listening to your gut as well, which tells you the people who are sort of really good for you and good to have around. And that can take some figuring out and a lot of mistakes as well. I've made so many mistakes in my life too, I should say. Um, I remember in year 10 and, you know, in New South Wales, um, it's probably the same in a, a, di a lot of different states that um, a certain amount of people don't finish year 12. So we have a graduation in year 10 as well. And the graduation was coming up and it happened to fall on the date of one of the most important carnivals of the year where it was state selection. And, you know, at that age I was 16 and I was heading towards that professional path and I had a choice to make. I could either put the heels on and go to the graduation or, or put the goggles on and stand on a line on the beach. And as I put those goggles on, I never regretted it. And I, I just always had that that sort of drive to achieve my goals. And I, I knew the sacrifices required. I think, um, you know, I, I was an avid reader and I would read about not only athletes achieving things, but what it took to get there. And I think understanding that that road from A to B to actually, you know, maybe it's 0.1 of a percent that makes it as a professional athlete amongst the thousands of, of kids that are trying. So as well, I think, I always, as I said, had to work so hard that I knew I had to make the sacrifices if I was going to get there, as opposed to I think you have a lot of children who come through who are very naturally gifted and and maybe sort of win quite easily. And then once they, you know, the field sort of catches up a little bit, it can be hard. Um, and as a coach now, I try to navigate kids through that stage as well who might be physically gifted. So yeah, being a bit of the underdog and um, and having to do it the hard way, I, I think served me well. Mm. And I mean, that is such a strong mindset to have at such a young age. I think a lot of kids and adolescents don't have that motivation. Um, how did you navigate that? And did you ever get to a point where it was just all a bit too much and the pressure just got to you? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm so glad we're touching on that because it is so important that, you know, to recognise the, the path, even once you make it into that professional series, you're, you're one of 20. There's one girl in that race who will win and you're not up against just your, your competitors, it's mother nature as well. So you can be winning a race, you can have it almost wrapped up and be 50 metres from the shore and a huge wave comes, you've got 10 competitors on that wave and they're all going past you. And those lessons and resilience you have to learn because in surf lifesaving, you have a bunch of different races. So that might be your iron person race. You've got your swim race coming up. So you've actually got to get back on the line after that absolutely devastating loss and find a way to get yourself back up again. And I think it teaches the most amazing lessons in resilience and overcoming adversity, like you said. Um, I got to the age of about 23 and 
I remember being so frustrated by some near wins I'd had. I'd had these couple of seasons where I'd almost cracked through for a win in a major race. And I just remember being so frustrated and thinking I'm racing with these other girls at training. I'm keeping up with them. Why can't I crack this win? And so I started trying to sort of shortcut my way to success. I, I tried to lower my body composition. I started skipping meals. Um, I started cramming in extra training sessions and missing social occasions. And, you know, theoretically, I thought, that's it. I need to train more. I need to lower my body composition. But I forgot how important all those other factors are that if you're not fulfilled as a person outside of the water, you're certainly not going to perform as well on the water. And that's exactly what happened. I got really sick um, and I actually had to quit the sport for two years. I got glandular fever. I, you know, basically couldn't get the strength out of my body required. So it was a really harsh lesson as a young person to learn. And when I came back to the sport, I'd had two years. It was, it was a silver lining in finding my people, finding where I belonged, finding what I was passionate about other than sport, and most importantly, finding my self-worth in who I was other than an iron woman. I'd only ever been Bonnie the athlete and Bonnie the iron woman. And so in knowing who I was and finding all these other passions, when I came back to the sport, I put my foot on the line knowing that I would be okay if I got second or last or it didn't matter. I'd have my friends, my family and my life outside of it. And I cracked the biggest race win of my career in almost the oh, first race back because I was so fulfilled. So I think, I think these lessons can carry across into whatever field we're trying to you know, achieve in or whatever personal goals we have, you know, never give up those other amazing things that make us who we are. And it can take some years to figure that out too. And, and that's okay. Don't be hard on yourselves as, you know, you've got to make the mistakes to learn and, and it'll, it'll all make sense in the end. Mm. And it's unfortunate that we hear this story so often that people start so young in a career and say sport, for example, and then they get to a point where they need to take a break because their whole life has been the industry or the sport that they're in and they lose themselves and they start then treating themselves, as you mentioned in your story, poorly. And then it's not until they build themselves up and refine themselves that they can confidently re-step back to that line, for example, but why do you think it? we get to that stage? Why do you think athletes get to a point where they need to step away, they need to take a break in order to find themselves? Like, do you think that we're almost starting maybe kids too young? I, I think, to be honest, there's more education now around it all. I think when I was the, the couple of generations prior, we we didn't have the education, or maybe we we sort of maybe had the instinct that we weren't providing you know kids with all of the support they needed. But maybe the statistics weren't there, and and we didn't know as much. And I think now you very much see that emphasis on enjoyment as much as achievement. Um, you know the importance of support systems and um, kids not specialising too young and Certainly, I, I did a whole bunch of different sports and a lot of it was pressure. I inflicted on myself too that that perceived pressure, you know, that that sometimes isn't there. And um, you just have some kids that are a lot harder on themselves than others. I see it in coaching. But 
I think now we know more. We've seen the stories of the athletes who have who have moved away from the sport and come back. Eventually, hopefully, some are lost to the sport. Um, and I think taking all of those amazing lessons in sport, you know, um, communication, teamwork, um, you know, the the value of um, working together to achieve a common goal. I think coaches these days are more educated in that area and even the courses as a coach we have to do they're more extensive and we're covering all of these other factors other than just you know skill and technique and what's on the water so I think informed coaches that's a really um, key factor uh, and informed teachers at school as well and there's more emphasis on mental fitness and, and mental well-being um, as opposed to just your physical performance. Mm. And it's funny we mentioned that, that mental fitness and people focusing a lot more on being able to posit positively support their mental health in, say, this space. Yet there are also a lot of conversations that are circulating in the me media that we're becoming a lot softer and that this is encouraging a softer generation what do you feel about that conversation? I know it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I think mm. it's sort of, it, it's such a contrast between, say, our grandparents' generation and, and the kids coming through underneath us now. Um, I think certainly, you know, you could go too far in one direction in, in terms of, um, you know, at the end of a race, I, I think you do should acknowledge the winner and you should acknowledge um, who's performed well. And I think you do need to learn those lessons in resilience. I, you know, if the kids go out and get um, smashed in the surf, it's it's actually quite healthy for them to come back. We have a chat, we debrief and they head back out again. They get back on the horse, so to speak, as opposed to okay, well, you can go in now and that's the end of the session and finishing up there. So I think it's a balance in, you know, open communication and kind of talking it through whilst also nurturing and guiding them to get back out there and take that on. So I think um, resilience can be found, you know, by seeing vulnerability as a strength, not a weakness. And I know throughout my paddle around Australia, it took me about two months to start really opening up to my crew and as to how much agony I was in and, and how much I was really struggling because I didn't want to detract from their experiences. Um, but once I did that, it made me and the crew so much stronger and it created this dynamic where they were able to tell me when they were struggling too. They were watching for 18 hours a day for crocodiles and sharks in the water around me. It was There were some horrific experiences. So I think that vulnerability is a strength. I, do, I don't know. I don't think we're getting softer. I actually think we're getting stronger as long as we recognise that, you know, mistakes and sort of the messy parts are necessary um, and feeling all of the emotions is is normal and, and is a good thing. Oh, I couldn't agree more and I feel that we're not so much entering a space where as, you know, conversations are lingering of being softer, it's we're becoming more aware more aware of who we are, how we react, how we function every day. And I think that is such a strength that has been missing for such a long time that, of course, we're going to have people that are going to disagree with it or make comments about it. And as you said, there's always two extremes, but it's it's finding that awareness in your life and how you can implement it to be the best version of yourself. 
absolutely. And the, and the key people around you, you know, um, Gotcha for Life, the mental fitness charity I'm an ambassador for now, we, and we call it your village and having a village around you. And when I speak to kids, it's, it's recognising those three to five people you can go to and talk to about anything, absolutely anything. And, you know, during COVID, the rates of uh, anxiety, depression and suicide were climbing and in the youth age groups um, as well. And I think we didn't, you know, we didn't have that social connection. We weren't having those meaningful conversations. And um, it's so, so important for kids to be able to recognise those key people to go to and be able to talk to about anything even if it seems silly to them um, because it never is so yeah having your village in place having informed you know adults around and um, education is is absolutely everything mm. and it's so great to have those conversations and as you mentioned those one two three people that you can go to if you are struggling but I think often the hard thing for a lot of people is how do I start it how do I start I know I know the body if we look at it like a paragraph, I know the body, I know what I want to say. Conclusion-wise, I kind of, I'd, sometimes they don't want to advice or they don't want a solution. They just want to be able to share. But what is your advice on how you start a conversation with someone and how do you know if they're the right person to have that conversation with? Totally. And I think sometimes you don't know until you have the conversation. And and that's why those couple of people in your village, because say one issue you're having might be appropriate for one person or they might be able to help you, whereas someone else is better with a different conversation. I think even sometimes just acknowledging that it might be uncomfortable saying to the person, look, this might sound strange, but or this this feels awkward to tell you this. Um, sometimes it doesn't have to be a conversation. It can be a voice memo or writing a letter. Um, you know, if you feel more comfortable with that that method or means of communication. Um, sometimes it's external. You know, going to um, a chaplain or or a teacher or someone um, outside of your peer group. You know, that that might feel a little better. A, a family friend or a relative. It doesn't always have to be in that immediate close friends and, and family circle. Sometimes it is. So, you know, I think sometimes just acknowledging we're human and saying, this feels awkward to talk to you. Can I talk to you about this? And absolutely the vast majority of the time, the person will provide an ear to listen. They will either have advice or know where to refer you to. And an activity we do in Gotcha for Life is actually practising um, two minutes where someone talks to the other person about a highlight and a low light recently and the other person has to listen for two minutes without saying anything because it's so rare in society we would just have someone's ear for two minutes without us trying to interrupt, you know, to fill the gaps and it forces the, the students to go deeper into what they want to say because they've got to fill that two minutes. And other times of silence can sometimes be a really powerful thing, um, you know, really think about what you want to say and um, you'll know you'll know if it's the right person through the conversation. If it's not, there's someone else in your village who can help out of that. As you said, one, two, three, five people, there is someone. So if it's immediate friendship circle, if it's that one step further apart, or there's plenty of helplines as well. So there is always, always someone you can talk to no matter whatever it is and however silly or awkward it might seem at the time. Mm. And I think it's really important that you don't wait 
you don't wait to a point when it's right for someone else or you don't wait to a point where it's at its worst. It's if you need to get something off your chest or you feel something lingering or even I like to explain it sometimes, just energy that just doesn't feel right or there's something that just hasn't happened that's great in your day, make sure that you find a way to release that and to get it out because we do know that that then builds. That's absolutely right. And I think finding that release, if that's a walk, um, for me, you know, I, the beach is my happy place. I absolutely <laughs> love diving into the ocean and it's almost like a cleansing for me, you know, when I do that. And that can help me gather my thoughts and, um, you know, even sort of be able to summarise. Like you said, sometimes it can be unclear what you want to say. It allows me to kind of think through the key message I want to get across, across in that conversation. Um, you know, for a lot of kids, sometimes if our emotions are getting the better of us, we're feeling frustrated and angry, it's finding that really healthy release. And that can be time on your own. That can be time with others. Um, you know, certainly immersion in nature has been found to be a really powerful thing, whether that's at the beach, whether that's, you know, heading out to the hinterland. We have some beautiful hinterland here on the Gold Coast, whether that's just going for a walk, getting outside and gives you, often gives you a bit of context around, you know, what you're sort of thinking and um, can create that, like you're saying, that conclusion that we've been struggling to, to develop. Mm. Which leads me to something very interesting that's on my mind because, as you mentioned, you have done an amazing, an amazing, amazing accomplishment in obviously skiing around Australia. And I would imagine that that would, whilst you do have a crew with you, would be quite lonely, quite all in your head. Every day you're seeing, well, I would imagine seeing a straight body of water and you have to keep yourself together. How do you overcome that? How do you keep yourself strong and keep yourself set on the end goal in a time when it's it's easy to give up? And I think in most things in life, the easy option is to just give up and just stop trying. Yeah. How did you keep pushing and keep going when everything was almost against you? Absolutely. And and that's, you know, one of the most common questions is, did, did you want to quit? And from a weekend, I, I wanted to quit every single day, every single day, really, for the first two months. I I was paddling over 100 kilometres a day from one weekend every day back to back. So I was sprawled on the back deck of the catamaran, unable to talk, unable to move. Um, I had bulging discs in my back from two months in. Um, sometimes I was, you know, in so much agony, I could only think of the next kilometre and have to string together kilometre after kilometre until I was finishing that 100 kilometres. Um, but I had to stay on that pace to get the record I wanted to quit from a weekend at a place called um, Southwest Rocks off of there in New South Wales. And I remember telling myself, just get to a month. You've done 12 months of planning. You've given up everything to get to this start line. Do a month and reassess and see how you're going. You don't even need to look at the whole of Australia. Early on, I was breaking it down on the map and I thought this is the worst thing I can do. 
And sure enough, I got to a month. And when I got to a month, my body was starting to slowly condition. And I remember saying to myself, you can't possibly let your past month self down and stop here. Do one more month. And every time I would do a month again, I would be stronger. I would be more equipped mentally and physically. And sometimes in life, if we're looking at a project, we've got to complete, you know, year 12 for students or university, you know, end of year exams. You only have to break it down into small sections and do the best job you can do for that block, for that study block of half an hour, for that day. And sometimes that is way down here and, you know, a lot's been going in our life and we can't perform to the level we'd like to that day. On other days, it's way up here and our productivity is high. It's about getting the most out of yourself on that day and breaking it down into small sections. And I promise that's how you get the best result out of yourself. If I would have looked at 12,700 kilometers on a whole, it's, it's equivalent from paddling um, from Australia to Turkey. Uh, oh. It's so overwhelming. So I actually broke that thing into kilometer blocks at a time. And, and sure enough, I started creating this buffer over the world record, but I never thought about that. It was just moving forward inch by inch. And sometimes the wind was so strong against me. I was going two kilometers an hour, but I knew it would turn. And at the strongest, uh, um, you know, point with the currents and wind, I was going 18 kilometers an hour. So I knew that 18 kilometers an hour would be coming at some stage, but the two kilometers an hour, they're the days that made this world record. Wow. I just... I think about that and I like literally picture myself in that situation and I think of my own head noise of like, just give up, just leave, just just run, just end it now. You may as well. Everything's hurting. Nobody really cares. How do you, I know there would have been thoughts like that processing through your mind and in, in everyday life, everybody experiencing experiences this negativity and these thoughts. Yeah. Sometimes it does consume us, but how do you switch it? How do you flip it? And because, you know, it's easy to say, you know, just think positive thoughts. You know, that's a common conversation people say. Just think positively, put affirmations up. But it's not reality no. and it doesn't always work. So based on your experience, how were you able to flip it? Totally. It's a great question. And you touched on it before where um, each day I was surrounded by just ocean. So I was about yeah, 100 kilometers out each day at the furthest point. I was 500 kilometers out to sea. So the water changes out there. It's scary. It's it's a dark, you know, dark, almost black. You can't see your hand under the water. Um, when you, yeah, I might have said that before, but when you look out to sea from the, the beach, it's, it's 40K. So 100K out I was each day. You, you don't see land for a couple of weeks out there you start to just get into, you almost start to imagine land. You're jumping at shadows. I had a great white come up next to me in Western Australia. I had to get back in the water in the same spot the next day. So this whole time, and I remember so clearly saying to my crew, I said, just keep talking to me. 
give me that dialogue and I lent on my crew in that time and that's where I learnt the importance of talking things through. We debriefed at the end of that day. I said, I'm absolutely terrified to get back in the water. They said, we will be here every step of the way and having them there. And I said, tell me riddles, tell me jokes, tell me, you know, trivia and finding that humour in the face of adversity as well. We would laugh at the bizarre. We would celebrate our small wins. Um, That really got me through. But on those days where you're just out there for 18 hours, it's windy. So the catamaran can only get within 50 to 100 metres. Like you said, it is just you on that ski. And I remember turning my headphones off at one stage and all I could hear was the wind whistling and just the ocean moving. And it's beautiful in a certain sense, but it's also really scary. Um, I think what got me through was recognising that the suffering was necessary to achieve my goal and and accepting that the only day I was going to feel good was the day I headed out from the Gold Coast on day one. And after that, if I could find a way to get through the pain and get through that, you said, the head noise, that would be the difference between me and the next person in terms of that world record. So we, we came up with a, a sort of saying that um, pain is a fuel to greatness and it was on this paddle, meaning that if I could accept all of those emotions and the messiness and the ugliness and and sort of get gritty with it, as I say, that is what was going to make the paddle and that's what would get me there. So I embraced that sense of, um, you know, the ugliness. And there were times where it was 30 knot winds and, and I was getting sprayed in the face by the water and I would be out there just looking up and, and I remember flipping it saying, how lucky am I to be in this position? How lucky am I to experience a perspective that, really no one's had before and being out in the middle of the ocean. So I think wherever you are and whatever you're doing, take that step back and look around and realise that the ugly and the messy, that's going to lead somewhere and your sacrifices will get you to that end goal and everything you learn on those days because I didn't set out from this paddle capable to cross the Great Australian Bite 500k out to sea. The first two months where I refused to quit that is what set me up for that two weeks, what was horrible of open water crossing. I lost eight kilograms in two weeks from seasickness. I still had to paddle 100K a day, but I built this brick wall of resilience. So if you can see the negatives as a positive in terms of it's building this brick wall and I could, I used to visualise that to myself, um, the things like that will get you through to where you want to go. Wow. And then... Talk me through that moment when you were finished, when you were done and you, you finally, you, you free yourself and you're over the line. What was going through your head and even your body? It, it is. And I love that word, that that freeing, you know, sensation because no one's put it like that, but that's exactly what it was. It At the start, it was relief. It literally was the monkeys jumped off the back. I can finally let the emotions go and just enjoy and not have to have that you know a lot of the time it was it was a burden carrying this world record I was the only one who could put those strokes one in front of the other my crew were incredible mentally you know supporting me from that boat but 
it was me that had to physically push every day. And I, all I wanted was one day off before the end. And um, I remember we came into the Seaway at Southport and I got that day off because I'd pushed really hard and done some extra kilometres every day from about a month out. I had a day of pampering. It was beautiful. And it allowed me just to gather my thoughts and really be able to celebrate with everyone when I set foot on the Gold Coast. It was eight months since I'd been home. I remember sinking my my feet into the sand. I still couldn't walk that well because I'd been in my skis so much. I was still um, not quite adapted to pace back of um, life of land, on land. It's really fast and it's noisy. And I remember I would come into land every couple of weeks and kind of trip over things. So I was still adapting back. But I just remember those first few hugs um, I got and I just, it was like the feeling of relief and then absolute ecstasy knowing that we'd done it. And I always say we, including my crew, because they were there for me. So as much it was, as it was amazing to break a world record, it was, it was the team and looking around and seeing their faces that really made it. Mm. Was there, what was the one thing you were looking forward to when you got back? Oh, I love that question because I, it's so easy. So I, um, the whole time was craving just sitting at my local cafe, eating some <laughs> on toast and reading the paper in a still environment because on the boat, the boat was, it was like being on a roller coaster at times. There were things flying everywhere. My stomach was unsettled. Sometimes when we were out at sea, it was so hectic. I would have to brace my feet on either wall and hold on to something basically to stay stable on the boat. It was quite dangerous. So in those times, it's too dangerous to cook in the galley, in the kitchen. Um, so you're eating just uh, microwavable meals or maybe grabbing a piece of fruit. But when I could sit there, catch up on the local news and what had been going on because we were sometimes out of reception for as long as a month and a half. So I had no idea of what, what was happening and that disconnect was beautiful and I was able to have the most amazing in-depth conversations with my crew, but it was just craving that little bit of normalcy as well. Mm. Did you feel you came back a different person? Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember standing in front of the mirror before I went and looking at my reflection and thinking, I'm not going to be the same person. I, I thought you cannot come back the same person after eight months at sea. If, if I get this done and I'm able to get around, this is going to change me. And it changed me in the best possible way. I, I you know, was out there at those times in the middle of the ocean and it you, you discover this sense of spirituality and a sense that had been lost throughout, I guess, all my years of racing in the ocean and, and seeing the, the ocean as a place to, you know, go fast and go hard and beat my competitors. And I was able to just be there and absolutely look around and enjoy the mother nature and the elements and and the beauty the beauty of nature in a way that I hadn't since I was I was little and with that comes a sense of creativity and curiosity and I started writing again I hadn't written since I was a teenager it's something I love doing and I remember thinking halfway around I I want to write a book I, I couldn't make these stories up as they're happening and it changed me in a way that now I would say that creativity, curiosity and and tapping back into that spiritual side. And and certainly in writing my book, it was it was a really beautiful sort of process in diving back into everything that had happened and unpacking it because 
things were happening so fast on the paddle. You'd have a crocodile sighting one day and then the next day be surrounded by dolphins in the middle of the ocean. The next day you'd see a waterfall and, you know, it was so much that was going on. It allowed me to sit there and sit with all of those emotions that were brought back up. Mm, and it's incredible to have such a transformative experience and then come back into the world where there is a lot of noise, there is a lot of people that are going about their business. How do you step back and find yourself back into an environment that is quite stimulated and not change that perspective? Yeah. And I, try and find yourself again? Yeah, yeah. It's it's allowing for the disconnect, which I think we've got to find in this day and age. We've got to make time for the disconnect, ironically, because all day, you know, we have busy lives. Um, we're, we're all connected in some way or other, right? Like technology is there. It's, it's not going away. It's advancing. And I think just finding that time in your day to switch off completely, head out. For me, it's heading out into nature and enjoying and it allows me to get clarity in my thoughts. And it was really interesting in writing the book. Um, people often say, did you get writer's block? And whenever I did or wherever I was struggling to find the words, I would head out, I would head down to the beach, I would dive in the ocean or I would, you know, paddle my board or my ski and it would come to me. That bit of inspiration would come to me. And I think sometimes in our lives we can feel a bit stuck and unsure where we want to go next and, and be lacking that source of inspiration and motivation as well. And I think disconnecting and, um, you know, actually allowing yourself the time and the place, the setting to think, it allows you to tap into that, you know, intuitive feeling and that gut feeling of, and it kind of comes to you like, that's exactly what I want to do or that's where I need to go next. That's who I need to talk to. Whereas where we're so surrounded by stimulus all the time, we're kind of not giving ourselves the chance to find that next bit of inspiration. So I think the disconnect and allowing for that will, will oftentimes put you on the right path. I think it's so important because as we mentioned, there is so many opinions and so many uh, conversations out there that influence how we think that we've become so scared of what we actually think or thinking for ourselves. We don't give ourselves that opportunity. But as you mentioned, when you go out for a walk or a swim or find time by yourself just to stop and actually what do you want and what do what are you feeling, we allow ourselves that permission to actually spark that creativity and actually give ourselves those moments to be who we want to be instead of it being clouded by everybody else's judgment or opinions on our life. That's right. You're absolutely right because our feeds and our news, everything we're sort of consuming is other people's opinions, right? Like it can be hard to, to find your own train of thought. And I think as well, you know, adding to what you said, allowing yourself to make mistakes too, allowing yourself to take a risk and dive in and try something new. You know, when I, when I dove into writing this book, it was a whole new world for me. I didn't know anything about publishing or finding an agent or, you know, even grammatically I had to, to learn really how to structure it to that level of, of, um, you know, the final product, which will be in stores. So it's allowing yourself to try new things it's allowing yourself to be B 
bad at something and not have to excel at everything and learning as you go. And it's the most beautiful thing starting off in a, a, a new field or starting a, you know, a, a hustle, a side hustle or a venture or whatever that might be with really no guarantee or runs on the board that you might achieve. And whether it works out or not, I can guarantee you will learn something about yourself. So it's that's it. It's allowing the place and the time to find the inspiration and it's allowing yourself to not be excellent at everything when you start and allowing for mistakes and, and not being hard on yourself when they happen because every mistake I made in my life is what led me to the start line of that paddle, I think. Mm. That's phenomenal. It's giving me goosebumps. Um, and how looking at your entire journey, which has led you to where you are today, even going into, as you mentioned, writing a book and then also into coaching now, what is your message based on what you've learned in your journey and what do you like to share with people based on what you've learned throughout the whole year? Totally. Um, my book is called The Girl Who Touched the Stars, Um it's basically a metaphor. There's there's a little there's a there's a moment in the book giving you a little um, spoiler where I am exactly. The, exactly. Um, I am in the middle of the Great Australian Bite 500k out to sea, and I'm looking up at the Southern Cross, which felt so close I could touch it. But basically, when it's about touching the stars at the end of that paddle, I'd finally gotten the big win I'd spent my whole life chasing. I got that world record. I got that gold medal. And what I realized after I touched the stars was that the record wasn't the most valuable thing I took from the paddle. It was everything I learned about myself along the way. And I'd sacrificed so much for success. And at times, like I said, my own health and different things. And what I realized was the beautiful and most memorable parts of the paddle was the moments I had with my team in the rain of celebrating, you know, the times of looking into shore and, and seeing a, a cave or seeing a part of Australia I knew I never would again. And, you know, having those experiences that I never would have gotten if I hadn't taken a risk and just dove in and not, not knowing, I, again, I had no evidence I was going to complete this or even, even get to that start line. Um, so it was achieving everything I'd wanted to achieve but realising that those gold medals, records, all of that isn't the most valuable part and I think um, most people will tell you the same thing so enjoying the journey along the way I would tell my crew remind me to look right and that would remind myself to look into shore and as I went, appreciate the journey and what I was seeing and the beauty in it. There's the beauty in the struggle. I think that's a, that's a key as well. Mm, it's so important, especially as we've mentioned, the digital world we're living in today where we just see the result. We just see people achieving the awards or we see people that have had overnight success and we don't see the journey. But the journey, as you mentioned, is the beautiful part. And that's where you find yourself and you learn all the life lessons that I think it's so important not to miss that and to have patience through that because the outcome will eventually come. But you could be missing out on such beautiful moments in between all of that. Absolutely. And then that extension of yourself, that last stage is the mentoring and the teaching and knowing that 
you've got to, you can be told something, but it's those actually experiencing life and the ups and the downs and the ugly and the messy and the amazing that allows you to be a teacher one day and a mentor and to guide a young person through life. And I get so much fulfillment out of that. I have my own mentors. I'm mentoring younger ones. And if it's not for those negative experiences, I think you're unable to teach in that same way. So that's another really amazing thing I've taken out of it. Awesome. And what are you doing with yourself now? Where to next for Bonnie Hancock? Is there another chase? Is there another thing that we're reaching for that we should be keeping an eye on? Absolutely. And I think it's interesting now. It's with a different perspective. I look at things. I I look at the world. There's so much water to paddle in um, <laughs> It's, you know, the idea of kind of breaking through, um, doing something that hasn't been done before and sort of that unknown and kind of testing the physical and mental limits of human endurance. And um, there is a continent further south, Antarctica, that freezing continent down there. Um, I would love to paddle Antarctica. Definitely not circumnavigated. It is absolutely massive. <laughs> not enough circumnavigation, but I, I think... Um, you know, certainly the challenge of that and, and the challenge that Mother Nature presents down there. You you have to prepare in every single way. I I love that. I love the research and, um, yeah, and, and getting the right team around me to succeed would be crucial. So, yeah, I, I sort of feel a little bit of that calling when I, when I think of Antarctica. So watch this space, I guess. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll see it pop up that you're on the news or something that you're heading down there. Wow, that is phenomenal. Sea life, marine creatures down there a bit more. Uh, well, what do you got? Killer whales for one thing, probably. Polar bears. And... That's right. Yeah. So beautiful penguins too in there. So they yeah. would be the one of the dolphins. Well, I think it's like a real life sea world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a good perspective. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for jumping on today and sharing your story and the amazing insight of what you've learned throughout the course of your life, I think, through sharing, even though not many people can say they've paddled around Australia, but can really relate in, and even I can relate on such small levels about overcoming that that negative mindset that we can get in and finding that resilience within yourself to, as we've mentioned, just get through another hump and, and another thing until we reach a place where we don't have to be happy with ourselves, but we're con content enough. And I love your story and I love how far you've come. And I just want to say congratulations on your entire journey and where it's gotten you to where you are today, because it's evident that you are thriving while still making mistakes, but enjoying the journey. And that is something to be very proud of. So thank you for sharing that today. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to chat. Thank you. And for those people that want to jump on board and find you, where can people get in contact or follow you? For sure. So different social media platforms, at Bonnie Hancock on Instagram, Bonnie Hancock on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn as well, Bonnie Hancock, uh, and my website, bonniehancock.com. Uh, and new book, The Girl Who Touches Stars, coming out Ooh. 31st of January in stores. Awesome looking forward to sharing the story that way are you nervous yes a little bit it's such an unknown quantity just speaking about the unknown it's um yeah it goes out on stores so i i, I hope uh what we're trying to do is sort of transcend age and gender and i guess you know 
create those lessons that resonate or kind of, you know, communicate the lessons that resonate beyond someone who's paddled a ski or an elite athlete. This is this is a book, I think, for anyone who's ever wanted to do something and had self-doubt and not been sure um, and it's all about teamwork and um, having those right people around you to help get there and what you can learn along the way. Mm, I'm excited to see it come out. I'll go buy a copy and, and see that, as you said, if it's something that people can just relate to on on such a human level, I think that's what we need more of. And I love books and I think books really do that where you can connect to one person and their story and be able to see yourself in that story and what a process, as you said, a very different process to have to go through. And I only hope that there's another freeing feeling once it's out there um, and that, yeah, you can just love every minute of it because, yeah, you've done a phenomenal job. Thank you so much. No worries. And thank you so much to everyone else out there for joining us for another Secret Sunday session. I'll catch you all very soon.